What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today's guest is registered dietitian, nutrition coach, and NPC bikini competitor, Lacey Dunn. Today's episode is really just a conversation between two nutrition coaches who are very passionate about all things nutrition. I really, really enjoyed this conversation, not only because it was cool to have a registered dietitian's perspective on the industry, on contest prep, on performance nutrition, gut health, so on and so forth, everything we talk about on the show when it comes to nutrition, um, it was cool to have her perspective because she's from that clinical background as well, being a registered dietitian, which is kind of controversial or opposite from the physique world or from the nutrition performance world at times because these two worlds can really collide and have so many disagreements but the reality is is we should all be somewhere in the middle and kind of have a balance right there's pluses and minuses of both places there's pros and cons there's rights and wrongs of both sides and if we can come in the middle and use these two different worlds to be better well-rounded as a coach and more educated so we can better serve our clients and get them better results. I think that's how we really win and and you'll hear her and I talk on the podcast a lot about so many different topics and how we both kind of meet in the middle and that's how we both get our clients such great results. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this podcast just because there's so much information regarding nutrition. I mean, we talk about brain health, injury repair, surgery-based nutrition, so stuff that I'm going through and what we can do with that inside of nutrition, disease prevention, gut health. Uh, We talk about artificial sweeteners. We talk about body composition changes, muscle gain, fat loss. We literally cover everything that you could possibly think of when it comes to nutrition. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear this show. One quick thing before we get into it, as you know, I always say this, guys, the best way for us to continue growing this podcast and actually reach more people around the world so we can help them just like we're helping you is to share this on Instagram. So please do me a favor. Take a screenshot of your screen right now while you're listening to the show. Head over to Instagram. Go to your story. Post it on your story and tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom. Tag Lacey at FaithAndFit. Let us know who you are. Let us know you're watching the show. We want to hear from you guys, and we want you to help us grow this movement so we can continue helping people around the world. All right, guys. Without any further ado, let's get into this nutrition episode with Lacey Dunn. Lacey, the Catwoman. Um, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. I've been uh, following you for a while. You put out a lot of great quality information, Um, and I'm really excited because you are an RD, but you're also in the physique space, which isn't – I don't – I don't know if it's rare, actually, and you can tell me if it's rare, but it's not super common. It's not very common to see RDs in the physique space doing bikini and figure and stuff like that. So I'm excited to kind of get your take on that world and how to prep and how to get into dieting and everything like that. But before we do, can you give us a little background for those of the listeners who are not familiar with your work? Yeah, of course. And thank you so much for having me on. I've been a fan of your podcast, a fan of your posts, and I'm just honored to be on here. Um, So a little background about me, I guess, how I got started into the fitness industry and everything. So back when my I started undergrad, I actually started weightlifting in order to make the University of Central Florida cheerleading team. Little scrawny, little stick thing, still scrawny, but whatever. I started lifting and learning to be able to make the team. And then I made the team and then I started, I kept learning, kept learning, um, kept training. And then it came to the point where I fell in love with the weight training over the cheerleading. And from that point, then it took me, um, my grandma was diagnosed with colon cancer um, one fall in 2013. And then I started doing a bunch of research on the literature in regards to cancer prevention, cancer care, how nutrition can help her in regards to um, her operations and her overall health. And so I was just head deep into this. I was like, wow, nutrition is so powerful in preventing and curing disease. And I knew it was just like a light switch in my brain. This is what I want to do. So I went from doing biomedical sciences to switching over, transferring from UCF in Florida to UGA and going into dietetics. So that's what got me into nutrition. Um, Of course, I was doing bikini competitions as well. Uh, but I never correlated the whole nutrition with doing that for physique competitions. Everything was always about, for me, disease prevention um, and nutritional care in regards to clinical nutrition. I was very much involved with that. And then I got my degree, transferred over to, not transferred, but graduated and went to uh, uh, 
Texas Women's University in Texas to do my master's degree and my dietetic internship. And here I am. I've just been um, doing online coaching since then, just trying to be a voice in the industry. At first, when I started, it was like, you know what? I don't need to be a coach just yet. I'm not an RD yet, you know? And I was like, just really limiting myself. And then I realized, there are so many crap coaches in this industry that they need me right now before I'm an RD. And that's the smartest thing I ever did. And I'm so glad I did that. Started my podcast before I was an RD and everything. So glad I did that because, oh, and this is just so funny with what's going on these days. I don't know if you've seen the news, but with all these bad coaches out there. But it's just very important that people know and go to credible people for their information and to be, get a coach. So that's a little backstory about me and then as well as a little rant about go to people who you can trust, who know what they're talking about. Yeah. And I think it, all the people listening to this podcast know that very well. Like I've said it over and over again, right? They know that I'm all about realness and, and find the right information. So you're just echoing my message. So I love that. Um, and I, I think the one good thing is that even though it's kind of a double-edged sword, I think there is more and more shit in the industry as we go on, but there's also more and more people good. exploiting good. that shit, right? So yeah, so I think it's kind of a double-edged sword and we're kind of trying to fight the battle. Um, this isn't exactly what I was going to ask you on the podcast, but since you mentioned clinical side of things, um, rehabilitation, recovery through disease and stuff, I recently, um, my crutches aren't in the screen, but I tore my meniscus. Uh, oh no! Second time, I know, it's horrible. I've oh. actually been in the, so this is crazy. Nobody, I haven't even talked about this yet. On Monday, I went and got an MRI. Tuesday, they called me and they were like, you need to get back in the hospital now. You have a blood clot in your leg. We got to make sure this is not going up to your lungs. And I was like, wait, what? So the, the meniscus tear caused a blood clot in my calf. Luckily, it's a small vein in my calf. It didn't spread. They treated it. Um, but I'm having surgery on my meniscus, so we have to do a special blood thinner. So I'm actually, Shannon, my poor fiance, has to stab me in the stomach with this needle and inject <laughs> blood stab. thinner. Stab. It's so bad. So... Um, but what I was going to ask you is for somebody who comes to you and says, Hey, I'm about to have surgery. I'm an athlete. I train very often. It's destroying me that I'm not gonna be able to train my legs for a while, but I'm still going to train my upper body. I'm still going to work. I want to rehab this as soon as possible. Cartilage and tissue and all these different things going on. What, what are your like strategies? What are your recommendations for people in that position? What do you mainly focus on with them? Yeah, the biggest thing first is focusing on pre-surgery care. So making sure we have adequate nutrition, starting the recovery process early. Um, that's something that a lot of actually doctors even put away is the pre-surgery nutrition. So we make sure adequate calories, adequate protein, uh, making sure we take off any medications that are going to potentially reduce you know, the recovery process. So anything like vitamin K for you would be terrible. Um, switching up your vitamin K status. Um, and then what I'd like to do is focus on really recovery in regards to post surgery after that. So adding in like a zinc and magnesium supplement, adding in some vitamin C, adding in collagen. So really making sure we give their body and their muscles the fuel and the, um, the nutrients that they need in order to repair what is going on. Um, for a lot of them, I do like adding in branched chain amino acids. Uh, there's a lot of literature to show that branched chain amino acids can be beneficial post-surgery. So just something that actually might be helpful for you. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm actually not familiar with any research on BCAs post-surgery. So that's actually really cool. I didn't know that they've done that because there's obviously so much debate over whether or not BCAs are even advantageous whatsoever because there's the people that, you know, like love them and eat them between meals and are drinking mm -hmm. them during their workouts. And there's people like, well, if you like the taste of it during your workout, drink it. If not, it's pointless and a waste of money. So that's actually really interesting. Now, would you recommend any of those type of like collagen, magnesium, things like that pre-surgery as well? 100% depends on why somebody went in for surgery. So if anything is muscular related, joint related, always I suggest things like collagen, vitamin C, zinc, really helping with bone health, joint health, and really repairing those tendons or ligaments. Love it. So since we're on this supplement note, let's actually start with that. What are your recommendations with supplements? Are you, there's, there's always like the two camps that are kind of like, they, they do believe in them. There's a lot of supplements that can benefit us. And then there's the people that are like all natural and they're like, stay away from everything. I kind of seem to float in the middle and I think balance is usually best. Um, where do you stand for the person that is like, Hey, I want to get leaner. 
I don't have any health issues. Should I waste money on supplements or not? Yeah, I'm all about reducing the amount of supplements that you buy. I am all about saving money. And, you know, there are supplements that are, uh, they have great efficacy, they're very effective. But, you know, just because something is effective does not necessarily mean you have to have it. There might be a 2% change. And for somebody who's just starting to lift, just getting healthy, you know, there's no reason to have to take a supplement. I always like to say, make sure you, you know, you have a multivitamin and you at least have that. Um, you know, there's some people that don't agree with that you have to take a multivitamin, but I say these days with the amount of processed foods and the amount going on in our bodies, it's better safe than sorry. So I'm all about reducing the amount that you take, saving your money. And then if you can afford supplements, then go into the ones that have proven efficacy. So which ones would those be? I mean, obviously we need to be looking for like third-party testing labels and stuff like oh, that. But as, but as far as, um, which is actually, it's, it, that's one of the things I recommend to people more than anything is like, just do research on the brand more than anything yes. because a lot of brands are just full of shit. But what typical supplements are you recommending to people in that boat? Where like, I can't afford it and I want that upper one to 5%, that upper edge. What should I be taking? Yeah. So I always suggest in regards to like uh, nutrition and fitness and like physique work. Um, so I firmly am a believer of the multivitamin probiotics for digestive health, as well as being anti-inflammatory, turmeric, anti-inflammatory, big fan of fish oil, uh, not just for cardiovascular health, but being anti-inflammatory as well as getting your omega three fatty acids. Um, big fan of creatine for sure. Um, and then I'm somewhat of a fan of essential amino acids, not branch chain amino acids, but I do find people that use blends that have all essential amino acids can help in regards to recovery. So what? So would those the, are my top ones. So what oh, and the, adaptogens. I'm a huge fan of adaptogens. Okay, so let's we're gonna dig into that second, um, and I'm on the same page with everything you just said. But with the BCAs versus EAAs, I've said that on the podcast, and I mistakenly just brushed over it. Like, yeah, I'm a bigger fan of EAAs than BCAs, and I just kept talking. And then mm -hmm. I got a ton of questions of why, why, why? Do you have studies? And so I just want to know your. And I've obviously answered all these people, and I brought it up again. But why? And and you might agree with, I believe John Meadows is into that too, the mountain dog. Yeah. I got that from him a long time ago. Um, what is your reasoning behind EAAs versus BCAs? Okay. So branched chain amino acids are essentially three amino acids. So in order to have muscle protein synthesis, to spike muscle protein synthesis, you need all nine essential amino acids. So when you're consuming BCAAs, not EAAs, what you're essentially doing is you're only consuming three out of nine. So where is your body going to get the rest of them? It's going to go to the muscles. So it's going to break down muscular tissue in order to get those that you need. Unless you, of course, you have enough in your blood from food that you ate. So other protein sources that you ate. But if you do not, you're just taking branched chain amino acids, then essentially what is happening is you're breaking down muscular tissue in order to get those other amino acids you need to turn on muscle protein synthesis. So there can be like a net effect of nothing or there can be actually a catabolic effect. So both are seen in the literature. With essential amino acids, you already have the nine that you need and for many, you have a high amount of leucine. So leucine is kind of like the, the, the special amino acid. So you want at least two and a half grams of leucine in order to, for, to spike the best muscle protein synthesis. So doing that, taking essential amino acids, you can make sure that you're not breaking down tissue in order to get those aminos that you need. Um, something that a lot of people do, which is crazy, but they still do it, is drink branched-chain amino acids all throughout the day. <laughs> and a big the flavor water of water. Yeah. 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 And I'm like, oh, stop it. Because essentially what you're doing by just drinking branched chain amino acids all day is you are preventing spikes and dips in muscle protein synthesis. And if it's always high, then you're not going to have any growth. You need those spikes and those dips. Yeah. Also keep in mind, you're not going to have that high spike that you need in order to get to that threshold amount. So you're just going to have like a, a low dim that's not really ever going to reach that spike. And also you're going to be taking unwanted calories. A lot of people are like, oh, this is calorie free. There's no calories on the label. There are definitely calories in your branched chain amino acids. I love that. That's a perfect explanation. I think it's funny when 
talking about this kind of stuff because I remember way back in the day, I absolutely was like carrying around a big orange water jug because I had BCAs in it because I just, that's what the dude told me to do. And, you know, at the gym. Um, cool. I love that. Explanation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whatever it takes. So let's, let's dig into adaptogens now. What are adaptogens? What adaptogens do you recommend and why do you recommend them? Yeah. So there are so many adaptogens. And the cool thing about adaptogens is that uh, they work essentially on your HPA axis, your hypothalamic pituitary axis. And what's great about them is for many, they don't really have any negative effects. All they do is they help with you um, with stress and anxiety and really taking care of the adrenals. So I love adaptogens for people, really for anybody, because sadly these days, everybody is somewhat stressed, somewhat anxious. So they really help just curb the stress and anxiety. They can be very helpful for females as well in regards to hormonal health. Um, my favorite is ashwagandha. I use KSM 66, which is a form of ashwagandha that has been shown in uh, various clinical trials to be effect more effective than other ashwagandha mixes that that don't have the specific like, compound that is um, as effective. So I use KSM 66. I'm a firm believer in that one. Rhodiola is fabulous. Holy basil is great as well. Um, so those are my top three. There are so many different adaptogens. Um, there's Rishay mushroom. So there's all these different adaptogens. But what's important to keep in mind with adaptogens is that you need to have a clinical effective dose. And so if you look at different supplements that are, you know, for adrenal health or thyroid or whatever, claiming to have adaptogens in them, I see this constantly. People will email me saying they're taking this adaptogen or whatever, and it's a mix. And it'll have like 10 milligrams of this, 100 milligrams of this, 50 milligrams of this. And I'm like, those aren't even close to clinical dosages. You need six, about 600 milligrams of ashwagandha for it to work correctly. You need about 300 or 400 milligrams of rhodiola at least 100 milligrams of holy basil. And if you look at a lot of these mixes, the, these proprietary blends, a lot of them don't even close to reach the effective dosage. So something to keep in mind, and also keep in mind that with adaptogens, it does take time for some to work. You need to give it at least two to three months. And this is around the basis that the HBA axis is very slow to respond. So that's why you need to wait that period of time. I love that. And that's a perfect little uh, tidbit you added at the end because I, I think it's so easy to fall into like cortisol RX supplement and it's just all this shit. And if you get into yeah. these proprietary blends, like you said, and I would suggest everybody go over to like examine.com mm. and they will tell you how much you need. And, and there's even been some studies on um, ashwagandha that show upwards of like 1900 milligrams, 2000 milligrams. And you're very rarely finding more than a couple hundred milligrams of yeah. any ashwagandha in a, in a complex capsule or anything like that. So you may look like you're from Breaking Bad when you're mixing all this shit together, taking all these pills, but it's worth it because it's actually going to have some kind of effect. Um, and then just to kind of wrap up the supplement talk, I love that like for people listening, besides BCAs, everything you recommended comes from food or something natural. So it's not anything over the top like fat burners or, or anything like that. And I'm sure creatine is probably the only other one that you would you would even throw out there that's not and i guess that's from food too so it's not even completely yeah natural creatine is in our meats exactly yeah so um but i want to touch on uh hba axis dysfunction and adrenal uh, fatigue quote unquote do you see that a lot in your practice because you're in the physique space and if you're more in the general population uh space you can kind of correct me on that too i know there's a lot of crossfitters listening as well and that's was kind of Jason did a great job at popularizing that or, or bringing it well known, but it's heavily in that space because it's so intense and it's so draining. And a lot of people were doing paleo and I see that all the time too. Do you see it as much in the bodybuilding space? Do you see it in general population? Um, and what are some signs or, or what can we do about it? Yeah. So first off, adrenal fatigue, quote unquote, does not exist. Adrenal right. dysfunction does exist. Um, there's some, I hate some practitioners that are so like, you can't have, you know, dysfunction in your adrenals. You would be like debt on your deathbed. I'm like, no, you can have dysfunction in your adrenals. I have seen it. It happens. So, you know, things to look out for are, you know, hair loss, extreme irritability, swings in blood sugar and blood pressure. 
Um, not being able to get out of bed in the morning, not being able to survive with just a few cups, like two cups of coffee during the day, constantly needing caffeine and not doing anything, having night sweats, waking, um, going to bed tired, but wired and not actually being able to fall asleep or waking up in the, the middle of the night. That's a huge adrenal red flag right there. So there's a lot of things that can go on. Um, and also keep in mind with all those things going on, you'll also see signs of other conditions like hormonal conditions. So you might see like things like estrogen dominance, low progesterone. So you might see a lot of um, abdominal fat appearing that's random out of nowhere. Keep in mind that's also if you're overeating. But something that does occur with estrogen dominance, um, your periods will change, be irregular. And then, of course, for many, um, you know, you just feel like absolute crap chronic fatigue. So those are kind of the symptoms that you'll see. Um, I forgot what the question was. Do you see it? Do you see it a lot in the bodybuilding space? <laughs> you, you, you explained it very well. That's the only other question uh, yes. that I really had yes. is, is just for anybody listening and wants to know what I say adrenal fatigue, just because there's a lot of people who aren't practicing. Yeah, I don't know what HPA access dysfunction is, but um, you explained it really well. So I'm glad you, you went through that. And I think one of the best signs for people to to kind of grab onto because it's just easy to see is like the irritability and then the tired and wired. Like if you're tired mm. all day, but you can't fall asleep at night, that's one of the easiest. It's a huge red flag. Yeah. yeah. Um, so do I see it a lot though. You yeah. do in the bodybuilding. Space? Yes. And it's more, actually it's a lot more. So I love my, I love my clientele because I have a huge mix of both bodybuilding and lifestyle. And I actually do have a few CrossFitters actually. Um, but I see it more in the general population with all these busy, busy moms or these college students, the PhD students. I see it in the general population more than I do see in the bodybuilding. And I actually think that's because the bodybuilding world is um, more informed. So at least the people that come to me have done their research and that they know if they're not feeling good, there's something wrong. Right. So they're taking control of that. And I think the busy moms and the busy students, everything, they're just always go, 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 go. And then they just crash. And I think it's the, the reason that's so valuable is because it, it lets people know that stress is stress is stress. It doesn't matter necessarily where it's coming from. Your nervous exactly. system can get hit from it. I know for me, before I owned a business, before I had a child, before I had all this stuff going on, like my volume was so high and I was totally fine. I would do like seven days a week of workouts sometimes. And I was younger, granted, but I didn't have a ton of responsibilities. I wasn't going to school anymore. I was a trainer. To, like I had a really easy going lifestyle and it was easy for me to handle that volume. As I started my business, as I had my child and I tried to keep that volume up, I just crashed. And it was very evident because in the way I noticed was being tired and wired and the fact that I could drink coffee after coffee after coffee and for some reason, I just didn't feel like it was working because you needed that IV in you to get through the day. Literally. So I had to have a big revelation and kind of change things. I don't know if I would say I necessarily had HPA access dysfunction, mm -hmm. but I was headed down that route. So I think it's good for people to listen and, and hear that from you because it's so important. Stress is stress is stress. Like you got to handle all your stress. Yeah. I know for me, the reason I am so obsessed with the adrenal function, with thyroid function, with hormone function is because I myself had have had problems with it. So with my, um, my dietetic internship and my master's degree, I was doing those at the exact same time while doing full online coaching and still going to do my workout six days a week. So I was doing a lot, never really had a break. And it really just sparked my thyroid to just start going to shit. And of course, genetics, my grandparents, like sister, brother, or whatever, had their, had their thyroids removed and everything. But it's just very important to me that people stay on top of their stress and put a lot of, a lot of effort into self-care and preventing these issues from occurring. I never want to see somebody go through being hypothyroid or even sparking in an autoimmune disease because stress and anxiety are one of those are two key triggers for autoimmune conditions being sparked up. Hey guys, I want to take a brief moment to remind you about the Boom Boom Elite, our membership site. This is literally the perfect place for you. The reason I know this is because you're listening to this podcast and anybody who listens to this podcast is a go-getter and an action taker. 
You are a person who is seeking information and education to better your body, better your performance, and finally transform your physique. I know this because people listening to this podcast really just seek results. And the one way to get better results is better training programs, but not only intelligently designed programs that actually build in progressions and avoid injuries along the way, but a place that's actually going to teach you how those programs are built. See, a lot of coaches and clients alike have insecurities about what they're putting on the piece of paper. Whether you're programming for yourself or you're programming for your clients, you probably have an insecurity or a lack of confidence in the programs you are creating. You probably question yourself. Are these programs actually going to work? Am I going to get injured along the way? When a plateau happens because it's bound to happen, what do I do? How do I adjust? How do I move through this plateau and finally start seeing results again? See, the Boom Boom Elite is not only a place to give you the programs that avoid these things and actually give you results, have built-in progressions, and make sure that you're not getting injured along the way, but it's a place that's going to educate you on how those things are actually built into the programs. So now, you have longevity in your results. You can actually adhere to them because you know what the hell is going on behind the scenes, and you can start creating your own programs that actually work and you have the confidence to know that they will work. So next time you put whatever you put on the piece of paper, you and your clients are confident and feel comfortable and actually believe in the system. Not to mention they're actually going to get results, which is the reason why we do this in the first place. So because you're listening to this podcast and because I know you're perfect for this, I wanted to take a second to just remind you about the membership site because this is the place that I spend every single day communicating with the environment, communicating with the community about training, about nutrition, about supplementation, about all the things that go into side of coaching. So if you want access to the Boom Boom Elite, click the link in the description below or go to boomboomperformance.com elite and sign up today. And without any further ado, let's get back onto this podcast. Yeah, hundred percent. So let's let's dive into the thyroid real quick. Then, so you've had your fair share of experiences. How? What did you do to overcome that? But then also, what kind of an effect does your thyroid have on body composition changes? Most people listen to this podcast want to be leaner or more jacked, most likely. Mm-hmm. So, what effect does the thyroid have on that? Because the thyroid's connected to damn near every cell in the body. What can you give us information wise about like one, just personal experience, what you did to prevent it. And then what can, what information can you give people to let them know that this is pretty serious? Cause it's pretty common, right? Like different hyper, hypo or hyperthyroid Hashimoto's. It's like, I want to say I was reading a book and it was like upwards of 40 to 60% of, the, of Americans have some kind of thyroid dysfunction or something crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot. And I think I read something where it was like 10% of the U S population has it, but doesn't know it. Yeah. So Um, I'm very, very thankful that for some reason it was like when I started my master's degree, I just started becoming very aware and interested into thyroid health. And I was doing reading, reading books, reading the literature. um, And I was noticing the symptoms after a full semester of it. And I'm very lucky to where I have the background to be able to, you know, know that I need certain tests to be done and my doctor's not going to do them. So I got to order them myself. So very thankful for that. But I was able to get the test done. Of course, had to order them myself because my primary care doctor was like, oh, your thyroid's fine. We just checked TSH. It's normal. I was like, that's not the full story. I'm going to go elsewhere. So I did. And then once I got those labs that I had drawn, you know, from ordering myself, I saw my levels were low, my T4 was low, my T3 was low, my TSH was normal, and I was like, there's something going wrong. Um, I don't talk about it a lot also, and um, I've never shared this on any podcast before, but I also have never, ever had a menstrual cycle in my life, so that was another red flag, um, and I've tried to get it, you know, I've gone through hormone um, tried progesterone challenges, all this stuff. And I was like, there's got to be a correlation here. So now we're working with my endocrine thinking that my pituitary is not responding. So from your listeners that that may not know, the thyroid is essential for every single, you know, cell in your body, like you said. So there's T4, T3, reverse T3, and TSH. TSH is a pituitary hormone that is supposed to respond to your T4 and your T3 levels. So T4 is your inactive form of thyroid and T3 is your active form of thyroid. So what happens is a lot of doctors just check TSH and they don't check T4 or they don't check T3. Well, 
If you're not checking T3, you're not checking what's actually active and working in your body. So we have to have T3 in order for our body to go through a variety of processes from creating hormones to having proper glycolysis, gluconeogenesis. It's just we need that T3 for every single component in our body. If you are low thyroid, you are going to have trouble in regards to losing weight. You're going to have trouble keeping on muscle mass. That's another thing I noticed was muscle catabolism. Um, and you're going to have a lot of dry skin, brittle hair, hair falling out, all that stuff. Um, so what a, doctors, a lot of doctors do is they just check TSH, but TSH is the pituitary hormone. It's only going to tell you how your pituitary is responding. And people like me, in which in regards to their pituitary is not responding, just checking TSH is not going to tell you what's going on. You might have low T4, but that doesn't tell you what's actually in and active in your body. So you might have low T3 and then you know that's low. You're not getting what you need in order for all this in your body to actually work correctly. That's crazy. So can you uh, give a recommendation for uh, like people to get a test done? Because I've seen this with clients where they go get their hormones tested and it doesn't give you enough information and they don't necessarily argue with me, but they're kind of confused as to why I'm like encouraging them to go get a, a full test, order it online, go get it done because yeah. your doctor's not going to give you the full story. Um, and their ranges are just usually asinine anyway. But um, where did you go for your test? Is there a certain brand or certain company that you recommend people go visit that gives you legit results? Yeah. So I work through my med lab. Love them so much. I'm not an affiliate with them. This is, I don't make one single dime from them, but I did finally get a website up with them to where all you have to do is go on my med lab, go to tests, scroll down to, and it says uplift fit nutrition. And I have made lists of tests. So if you click, it'll say thyroid health. Whoops, dropped my phone. Thyroid health. And it gives you every single test that you need for your thyroid. So TSH, T4, T3, reverse T3, TPO antibodies. The antibodies are what are going to diagnose you with things like Hashimoto's and autoimmune conditions. I also included things like a hormone panel. So what to include for your cycle. Keep in mind, that's going to be different if you're on birth control, if you don't know where your cycle is, etc. Um, and then I did things for general wellness. So my biggest thing is making sure that you get those four tests. TSH, T4, T3, reverse T3. If you, you know, in general, that will give you a good clue of what's going on. And then if those levels are low, then you can go the whole TPO, TPO antibodies tests. Love it. Yeah, I'm going to link that in the show notes. Um, I actually, for the listeners too, that's exactly who I use as well. Um, and for even yeah. for myself, for testosterone and full metabolic panel. Um, Stan Efferding came on the podcast. He said the exact same thing. He created his own like uh, male athletic panel that gives you everything that a guy needs to look at basically. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously if multiple people are recommending this guys, it's a good place to go and it gives you the full spectrum of what you need. Um, and it's really easy to use too. Once you do it online, they just send you like, here's your locations and you just drive to a lab corp. I'm actually, I was actually supposed to go get mine done again for, I just do it every once in a while just to keep me on point. Um, but then I hurt my knee. So it's been like reschedule, 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 but mm -hmm. you just basically pull up to a lab corp, do your blood and then you're good. Um, cool. So I want to shift gears just a little bit, um, to talk about kind of more application based stuff for the client listening. So the first topic I wanted to cover with you is flexible dieting because yeah. you are in the realm of, physique space, but you are also an RD, which I feel like can kind of be butting heads depending on who you're talking to. Cause I am, mm -hmm. was obviously really big in the physique crowd, um, which they're not necessarily wrong, but they're not necessarily right either. So I just want to get your take on flexible dieting, how you implement it, what's good about it, how far do we need to take it or how far should we not take it? So on and so forth. Yeah. So just quick, funny story is, you know, a lot of dietitians still don't understand flexible dieting. They don't understand macros. They're like, I mean, they should, they know what macronutrients are, but they don't know like what macro tracking is or how to do it or whatever. And so during my internship, I would just be sitting at the computer, you know, writing up notes for people in the hospital with my dyke, you know, my diet soda sitting there and they just look at me like I was crazy. They're like, you're going to drink that? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to drink that. Have you read the science on it? 
Anywho, it's just funny how a lot of a lot of dietitian. Yes, yes, love I it. it. Love it. <laughs> I got my diet ready. ginger ale right here. <laughs> nice. Totally get it. Yeah. So, so there's um, it, it's not really much in the dietitian world. Trying to get it um out there, but flexible dieting to me essentially is not about going out and eating. And I know you're with me here, not going about eating a bunch of processed foods and trying to fit all these different, um, non-nutrient dense foods in our, into our diet. So not a lot of throwing in ice cream, pizza, um, chili from Wendy's or whatever you feel every single day of your life. Flexible dieting means to me being flexible in choosing different sources of whole foods and being able to transition and change those based on how you're feeling day to day, what your food preference is, and being able, to, being able to go out and enjoy your life with your friends and family. That's the most important thing. And the reason that I love flexible dieting, because it stops it from being, you know, I can only eat X and Y. It stops it from being bad versus good, because that creates bad food relationships. It makes it, you know, I can have all foods just in moderation. And that's why I love flexible dieting and I'm a proponent of it. I actually tried, fingers crossed, to get into FENCI, the Food Nutrition Conference for Dietitians, to do um, a presentation on macros and flexible dieting. I would love that. That would be huge, for, especially for the dietitian space. It would be, but I'm, I, I'm very fearful that they won't yeah. because they're very much tied to things like intuitive eating these days. Yeah. Well, I think the problem, like one thing for people to remember too is flexible dieting is not just food selection. It's also like how many meals do you want to eat today, right? Exactly. Like that's a big piece of it. It's not just you can fit a Pop-Tart in your diet, right? And I think it's good to remember like still kind of practicing that 80 to 90%, 10 to 20 rule, um, where you are still using micronutrient foods that you enjoy and fitting those in. Um, my next question with that would be, uh, since we brought up Diet Cokes, was artificial sweeteners. Like, what is, is there a limit? What is the limit? Um, I know there's people like Lane Norton who are super intelligent, but they also, he also talks a lot about, you know, there's no study, so you can have as much as you want kind of a thing, which there's a lot of people that have backlash on that because I think some people's stomachs just don't agree with it. So we can't really argue if somebody's having very bad digestive stress from drinking Diet Coke, where somebody like me can drink a few and I have no issue at all. But I just want to get your take on that because you've been in the space that is probably against it, but then also live in the space that is for it. Yeah. Artificial sweeteners, <laughs> there's so much data and then there's not enough data. So really it's highly individualized. Everybody has a different metabolism, a gut microbiome, different genetics. So it, it also depends on what you're drinking. Is it a sugar alcohol? Is it aspartame? Is it sucralose? Is it neotame? What is it? And what dosage are you having it then? You know, the FDA, people are against the FDA saying, you know, they're all out to get us. But it's been significantly proven safety-wise that X amount of um, an artificial sweetener is safe for us to have. Keep in mind, safe doesn't mean that it's technically going to be fully good for us and it's going to make us feel our best. And I'm also a firm believer in just because there isn't evidence doesn't mean that you know X can't happen. So I know many people that you know can drink if they drink a diet coke, then they have headaches. Well, just because that's not in the literature doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So you really have to focus on individuality and it fits right into flexible dieting. If you drink artificial sweeteners and you feel fine, cool. But do keep in mind there still are limits. So I like to say, you know, keep a max of one to two soft drinks a day. Just be very careful and cautious. Um, you know, just because you have you are allowed per day a whole liter doesn't mean you should eat drink a whole liter you know so it's really all about balance and knowing just with anything just because you can have a whole entire bag of broccoli doesn't mean you should have a whole entire bag of broccoli that's probably not going to feel too hot so just keep things into perspective i like to say and i think that's that's huge for going back to the flexible dieting piece too is like it almost became a challenge right like if it's your macros is like how much of this shit can i fit into my calories and it's like a game to play on your my fitness pal apps like that's not what this is for macro tetris 
Yeah, exactly. It's, it, this is about <laughs> adherence, right? Um, so to, to kind of cap off the artificial sweeteners, do you have any recommendations for people as far as which ones to stick with or stay away from? I know some people are like, you know, stevia is fine, artificial sweeteners are fine, but stay away from sucralose because that's the one, right? Is there, are they all created equal? Are there some that we should stay away from? No, none of them are created equal. They all have different um, effects on our bodies. So things like sucralose can actually read our, reach our large intestine, whereas um, aspartame doesn't even reach our large intestine. Um, and then things like stevia, which have been shown to be beneficial for our gut microbiota. Um, our gut microbiota, beneficial for insulin sensitivity. And then there's research saying like sucralose can be bad for insulin sensitivity, causes inflammation, and then aspartame. Um, there's, it's funny when I see um, people say, oh, aspartames can be bad for those with, you know, problems with their large intestine. I'm like, it doesn't even reach their large intestine. What are you talking about? Anywho, it's just very important to look and do the research and know that these different artificial sweeteners are all going to be different per person. I'm a big fan of stevia. I, I, I'm also not, quote unquote, a fan of aspartame, but I do prefer equal. I grew up on it. So I'll throw a, a few, two packets. I do two packets a day in my coffee and I say, okay, that's just fine. Um, sucrose, sucralose, I very much see people are, you know, good for it or they're not good for it. So they either have a digestive upset with it or they're just fine. That's all about dosage too. Um, do you do you see that as well? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it usually is. I always recommend to people is like, anytime you can do stevia, stick with stevia. If you have a little bit of aspartame in, in, in something, don't stress it. But yeah. I think the biggest key of all this is just not necessarily bio. I mean, it could be biofeedback. Like, how do you feel afterwards? But take notes, right? Like, yes. if yes. you're feeling like shit, like, try to find out why you're feeling like shit. I, it always ma amazes me when people are like, well, you know, my digestion sucks. I'm stressed. I'm not sleeping. I'm like, okay, well, like, how is your training? I don't know. Like, well, what do you do for training? I don't know. What are you doing for your diet? I don't know. Do you track anything? No. I'm like, well, these are all the things that are going to give you the signs that tell you exactly what yeah. the hell is going on. Like, let's track. So I think for people like take notes, like we can't, and, and people will notice this, like you're a nutrition coach, you're a successful bikini competitor, you're a registered dietitian over and over again, everything you've been saying just leads to people needing to understand that it's, it depends over and over again. It depends on who you are, where you're at, what you're doing, what your goal is. Everybody's different. So everybody's going to have to take notes on everything we're talking about. Yeah. And you know what? I do want to, I'm a big fan of Stevia, but just so your listeners know, there are a lot of brands of Stevia that actually do not contain mostly Stevia. Really? So things like, yes, things like Truvia, even Sweet Leaf Packets. Um, these brands, they include a little bit of Stevia. So what you want, you want to get a pure Stevia leaf powder. But what they do is they fill these things with fillers. So if you look at the back of the label, it'll say maltodextrin, organic stevia, yeah. Rebe, or it'll say um, erythrotol, Rebe, stevia leaf powder. And I'm like, all right, if somebody has two packets and it has erythrotol on it, that's already four grams of erythrotol. That adds up and sugar alcohols, including erythrotol, can be really, really tough on the digestive system. It can cause people a lot of stomach cramping, diarrhea, bloating, distension. So just keep in mind, look at your labels, know that just because it's an artificial sweetener doesn't mean that's all that's in there. I love that. It's so important for people to read the ingredients and also know that ingredient lists go in order of weight, I believe. So if, they do, yes. if you get a stevia packet and something, it comes on the ingredient list before stevia, that is like a huge red flag. Yeah, I've seen them once said one said organic cane sugar, erythrotol, stevia leaf. And I was like, sugar should not be the first ingredient here. Yeah, that definitely should not. And you know what? Since we're on this topic, this just came kind of came to mind and I saw you had like a story highlight on it. Net carbs. Fill me in on this. Uh, I know it's kind of it's not necessarily gone and done. There's still people that don't understand it. Um, but that was like a big thing for a while. So like, how much did that kill you as a, as a registered dietitian when that came out and everybody was like throwing net carbs on their labels? What is a net carb and how much bullshit is it? Uh, and it still goes in the whole entire diabetes world. And it killed me because I had to follow a certain presentation when I did my diabetes rotation and I had to talk about net carbs and educate on net carbs. And I was like, I'm literally 
educating on the thing that does not exist, <laughs> that should not be talked about. <laughs> oh, it was so annoying. But essentially, net carbs, quote unquote, are supposed to be the carbs that you digest and you accumulate energy from. And it's essentially saying that the fiber that is included in a product is not being fully digested. So if something says like 14 grams carbs, four net carbs, it's assuming that those 10 grams of carbs of fiber that may be in a product aren't digested and have no calories. Well, that does not happen. And we can't say that because in our bodies, fiber content and the calories that we get from it depend on what else is in the food, what else we've been eating, what our own gut microbiota fuel on and actually extrapolate energy from. So it can range from two and a half to one and a half to four calories per gram of fiber. So we can't say just because there's X amount of grams of fiber, we, we can just track the net carbs because, you know, the fiber doesn't matter. Fiber does matter and fiber is going to give us calories. It just depends on what our bodies are like. So we can't, I like to say, always track all your fiber. Yeah. Track all your calories. And then the other thing with that too is how confusing is it going to be if you're trying to just like subtract net carbs out of things? Like very tracking is already a calculation experiment. Like let's just leave it at that, not add to the complexity. Um, so I'm glad you cleared that up. Something I wanted to ask you on was gut health. And you've mentioned that quite a few times regarding just hormone issues, stress issues, um, whether we're doing artificial sweeteners, so on and so forth. The gut health is kind of like, a, it's not a fad because it's, it's just not a fad. You can't really have a fad around gut health, but it's very, very hyped up right now. It's very popular. Everybody's it talking about it. It's one of those things that's so interesting because there's so much information coming out about it, yet there's so little that we know about it. So I just want to get your take on it. Like, How important is it for us to be aware of our gut health? How can we optimize our gut health? And how can we, uh, like, what do we need to stay away from to not destroy our gut health? Yeah, so some things to keep in mind um, in regards to your gut, your, your digestive tract is where you get all your nutrients, of course. So if you have an unhealthy gut, you are not absorbing and digesting the nutrients that you need, you're going to feel like crap, you're not going to reach your goals. So you really need to make sure that you're not taking in things that are going to inflame your gut, that are going to cause you food sensitivities, because that is just going to make you feel bad and not reach your physique goals. So limiting foods that cause you issues, use specific issues, not thinking that just because everybody in your, everybody XYZ says gluten is bad, meaning it's bad for you. Not saying that, but if X food causes you issues, limit it. Um, and another very important thing is that 80% of the serotonin in our bodies is created in our gut. And serotonin is very important in regards to our mood. So very important for things like being happy, being sad or, you know, going to bed at night that influences our serotonin and melatonin levels. So making sure that we are being very kind to our guts so that we are not just, you know, bringing down that serotonin levels and causing us to not be able to sleep and not be able to be happy and thriving. So be very kind and put into your body foods that are going to make you feel your best. When you are trying to figure that out, are you somebody who goes towards food sensitivity tests? Are you somebody who's like, no. they don't work. Let's just do an elimination test. There's kind of like, there's, I've even had some people on this podcast who are doctors who do agree with them. Um, but then I've also read research and talked to a lot of people who talk about, you know, an IgG uh, sensitive, like if you get an IgG inflammation or response to a food that doesn't necessarily mean you have a sensitivity to it it just means that you've probably just had that food recently and that's your body's response to it yes. what is your take on it and, and is are there any food sensitivity tests that we can take and actually see results from that are meaningful i 100 percent agree with you on the igg tests i'm a firm believer in you know if somebody can afford an igg test just use it but keep in mind, it's not going to be like black and white, yes or no, you have a sensitivity to it. Use it with an elimination diet protocol. 
it always takes trial and error to figure out gut issues. So that is the most important thing to keep in mind. And I like to say, if you are having really bad gut issues, the best thing you can do is go to a doctor and first rule out things like celiac disease or Crohn's disease or something if you're having really, really bad problems. Yeah, 100% agree. And I think people for people listening, elimination, like study after study, test after test is always going to be the most accurate thing. So you have to be taking notes and it sucks to eliminate some foods for a little bit, but this is where like, you know, flexible dieting is great. But if you have serious issues, like you need to handle those issues and you do Mm -hmm. have to be a little more rigid because you have to create an uh, an elimination diet to be aware of what's going on. Yeah. And the first thing you can do is look at vegetables because vegetables can be really hard for our body sometimes to digest. So look at things like Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, broccoli, see how little bits of it cause you issues and see how, you know, just taking those specific foods out helps you try. Of course, I don't want to be like anti-gluten, but see what taking out gluten and wheat does to you. Do you feel better? Do you have more mental clarity? Do you have better digestion? Try that next. Try things like eggs because eggs for, you know, eggs can be a hit or miss for people. Um, so those would be my first three things to try and do for elimination. Have you been aware of uh, going through a process of eliminating something, having relief of a symptom, and then being able to reintroduce that same food that caused the issue and it being okay now? Is that, yeah. a, is that re- reality for people? Yes, that does happen, Um, but it very much is very slow and adding in small dosages. So just like to give your listeners, you know, think about if you were doing a contest prep diet and you cut dairy for a long period of time for your contest prep, just because maybe you didn't have calories in it, or maybe you just had a crappy coach who didn't let you have dairy. Your body no longer has the enzymes to, enzymes very active to digest that dairy. So you have to slowly incorporate it back in, in order for your body to digest it correctly. So for a lot of my clients who have gut health issues, by slowly introducing it and adding it back in, you're able to tolerate it better. And you also are able to figure out your own personal threshold for that food. So I like to give the example, my body for Brussels sprouts can handle one and a half servings of Brussels sprouts. But if you give me two servings, not joking, two servings over one and a half, I am a gassy mess. So it's all individualized and you really have to figure out what is the threshold for that specific food for you. And just because you cut it out in an elimination doesn't mean you need to cut it out for life. Yeah. And that's the big point I wanted to draw home because I think an an elimination diet can be kind of intimidating for some people because they're like, fuck, I got to remove this forever. Mm -hmm. Like I, I can just never have this food again. Screw it. I'm just not even gonna do it. Um, I personally have eczema and, um, I was getting, so weirdly enough, like oranges and citrus fruit have always been an issue for me. Um, but eggs started making me respond that way. And it made sense. I was going through this, like, this is a long time ago. I was going through this, uh, photo shoot prep and I had my meal plan pretty much locked in. I didn't want to change it because it was just easier to do. But I legitimately had probably like six eggs a day, every fucking day. Like it was just religious and I love eggs, but it eventually it just, it was just too much. And I, uh, I started getting really bad eczema again. I cut out eggs and I was fine. I waited like six months, um, which isn't necessarily like, you don't always have to wait that long, but I waited quite a while and then I reintroduced eggs, but I had like one egg and then I waited a week and then I had like two eggs and I waited Mm -hmm. like a few days. And then eventually I started having like eggs every couple of days and it was totally fine again. But I had to go through that process of eliminating, which sucked because that was my staple breakfast. But guess what? It was worth it because then I didn't have eczema. And that's what really mattered to me. So I think for people listening, it, it is a temporary thing, but you have to do these experiments with your body. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned you have to do it and you have to be patient in the process. A lot of people are like, oh, I eliminated it and it's only been a month. So let's add it back in. I'm like, no, no, take it slow. Take it slow. Yeah. Or and like- don't do it yourself either if you can. If you can have somebody help you. Yeah. That doesn't mean you have to go hire a dietitian. If it means like having your spouse be on top of you to help you, you know, really stay on track with it and not go too fast or too slow, have somebody there. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's so key for people to remember that because, and you've probably had this, like I'll be going through this process with clients who have like IBS and things like that. And I'm like, all right, we have to like try to eliminate these things. And they'll go all week and they're like, yeah, I didn't eat it. And I'm like, so what did you do this weekend? Just because I'm curious. And they're like, well, we went out to eat and I had like these things with everybody. And I'm like, well, there was definitely gluten and dairy in that. So we kind of ruined it. Like you have to understand that like 
just because you cut it out for four days doesn't mean it's good. Like I'm unfortunately like give me at least 21 days and we can kind of see some symptoms like starting to improve. And at that point, maybe it'll give you some motivation to keep going and then we'll go for mm. a month and then longer, you know? So I'm glad you said that. Um, the last question I have for you that I wanted to kind of go over is, uh, I literally wrote down Seco over everything question mark. So like calories in versus calories out over everything. Is that all that matters? Like, where do you stand on this? Cause I find this like in the space, there's this battle between people where it's like, no calories in versus calories out, no matter what you're full of shit, your hormones are fine. You're just eating too much food. You're not tracking correctly. You're not measuring mm -hmm. correctly. And then I have the people that are the opposite. They're like, you know, what? calories in versus calories out. And this is kind of where I stand do matter the most but at the end of the day there's other factors that go into play because i've personally had clients who i know for a fact they're tracking to a t they're measuring their food properly they are not seeing results their calories are in a deficit they should be in a deficit so whether it's a hormonal issue that forces that deficit to not really be a deficit unfortunately um, or they have something else going on that is just not going to let their body lose fat i don't really know i'm not doing studies on them but something else is going on a lot of time. So I wanted to get your take on this and see where you stand as somebody who is a registered dietitian. Yeah, I'm 100% with you and fully agree. Calories in versus calories out, energy, um, energy in versus energy out. Yeah, completely matters. That is, you know, energy balance, that is thermodynamics. But there are things that influence that, that, you know, can be out of our control, like our hormones going to crap, our thyroid. If we do not have our active thyroid, our metabolism is going to go down. And significantly, people can be tracking day to day and having, you know, following their meal plans, but they cannot be losing weight because their thyroid has reduced. And then you have to keep in mind, this is what makes me mad when people are like, oh, calories in versus calories out is all that matters. Well, you've got to think about people who have digestive problems like Crohn's disease that are eating all these calories, but they're not actually absorbing it too. So just because you eat it does not mean you're digesting and absorbing it either. Yeah. So something to keep in mind. Um, I know like I just made a post about this and somebody was commenting and was like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Calories in versus calories out is all that matters. I'm like, you want to go tell somebody who has a hypothyroidism that it's just calories in versus calories out because I can promise you that's not the way it works. Yeah, 100%. Their thyroid is obviously going to have an influence on their body. And people who have done like a lot of dieting and who have had metabolic adaptation Obviously, they're going to have low. Um, they're going to have low thyroid levels, low hormone levels, and it's going to be less calories. And yes, it's still calories in versus calories out. But there's things you have to keep in mind that affect that. Yeah, hundred percent. I just think there's just so much more in the picture, and I'm glad to hear you say that because I think the worst part is that there are big names in the industry, and some of them I don't think are. I don't like the word or the term in the trenches, but like, I don't think they're actually working with a ton of people in real life. Like it's more studies, it's more literature. Um, and there's just some cases where it's just not that simple. And to, to like shut people down and say like, no, you're just eating too much food. You're not tracking correctly. You're wrong. That doesn't help anybody. Like, and I think that's the biggest thing. Like we're all here to just help people. So I like hearing you say that is even better. Um, Awesome. I love everything we've gone over today. I think like it's, it's always great when I have somebody on the podcast, especially when they are a registered dietitian um, and uh, we agree with everything. And I think it's important for people to hear because I think nutrition coaching is becoming so big in the space. Um, and I think being a registered, registered dietitian is great, but I don't think you necessarily need that. I think it definitely separates you. And I think you have not only legal, but like, like, just the knowledge and education behind you gives you the ability to do some things that maybe some nutrition coaches can't. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, like we're all here to help people and, and we're doing so many good things. So it's always awesome having somebody like you on the podcast to, to kind of just really bullshit and have a fun conversation about all things nutrition. Um, but I can't let you go. You've listened to the podcast before. I can't let you go without the personality question. So here's the situation. I don't know if you've yeah. thought about this before. Um, some people come on the show and they're like, I already know what I'm going to say, but you are at dinner. You have three seats in front of you. You can choose anybody to sit at that dinner table with you, alive or dead, but they cannot be friends or family. Who is sitting at that table with you? Cannot be friends or family. Okay. Ellen DeGeneres, number one. Um, probably two, Oprah Winfrey. Um, probably three. Oh. Can it be Jesus? Yeah. Can I not? choose Jesus? Okay. Jesus, Oprah, and Ellen. That would be a good table. That would be a good table. Quite possibly the most inspirational table ever. Yes. Yeah. If it was just one person, it, well, dang, if it was just one person, it'd be Jesus. If I could choose Jesus. If not, it would be Ellen. Ellen is like my favorite person ever. 
She's hilarious. I love it. That is a great table. And that would be an interesting conversation between those three people. So um, before I let you go, last little bit, where can everybody find your stuff just so they can follow you and get some more great content? Yeah. So you can follow me on Instagram at faith and fit. Um, my podcast is uplift fit nutrition. I will hopefully have you on very soon. So we'll have another conversation and then my website is upliftfit.org. And then you can also follow me on Twitter at Lacey a Dunn. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you so much. And if anybody, you know, if you have any questions, feel free always to email me, DM me. I'm always happy to answer. 